Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Michael Berg. I've been a member here at Northminster for over a year now, along with my wife, Kira. And uh, you can find us many Sundays sitting somewhere over there, sometimes with our little girl baptized here, now almost eight months old, uh, Magdalene Ray. Magdalene's favorite word right now is ba 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 And this Christmas season has been such a blessing because um, with our little girl, I get to think about how at one time Jesus, too, was this tall. And how Jesus, too, at one time crawled around on the floor and said, ba 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 So it's been a really, a really cool thing to watch this year. Church, I'm honored to have the privilege to preach to you this morning, uh, especially in the Advent season. So I wanted to thank you all and thank the elders for giving me the chance to talk to you today. I pray it's a time of worship and growth for us as a church. And why don't we begin by, by going to the Lord in prayer and just be aware. I'm going to ask you, uh, after I pray for a moment, to, to pray yourselves, just silently to yourself, to pray for me, to pray for yourself as we begin our time of study together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that you've given to us uh, to learn about you, to grow to be like you in Jesus. We pray that this would be a time of, of growth and worship for us and, and a time that pleases and honors you. Now, church, I ask that you pray for yourself, that you would be open to the movement of the Spirit this morning. And now, church, would you pray for me? that I would be helpful to you uh, this morning. So we love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the great joys of my life thus far was my four years I got to spend attending Wheaton College. And <clears throat> not only was it a joy because I got to meet Kira at the end of it, but it was also a joy because I got to spend four years worshiping alongside people from all different Christian backgrounds, all different races, nationalities, family backgrounds, all different kinds of people. And what made that so fun was in chapel, we would worship, and there would be just all kinds of things happening. There'd be people dancing in the aisles, there'd be people clapping, there'd be people shouting amen, and I think that that kind of congregational engagement is kind of fun. So I thought, you know, this morning, why don't we try some of that? Now, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to dance in the aisle, at least not this time. But if I say something true this morning, which I hope I do, and if I say something that I think is worth getting excited about, I might ask for an amen, okay? So I thought we would practice that before we really got going. So here we go. Church, we gather here this morning to worship and celebrate the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? This God loves us as his people. He loves you as an individual. And he has plans for us not to harm us, but to give us a hope and a future. Amen? Amen. Amen. This God, much like he heard the groans of the Israelite slaves in Egypt and sent them a deliverer in Moses, has heard our cries under the weight of our sin and has sent us a Savior, his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You're good. A couple more. This church or this church, this Jesus, was born in a lowly manger. He lived a sinless life. 
He died a painful death to pay the price for our sins and to spare us of the penalty that we deserved. Amen? Amen. Last one, last one. This church, this Jesus, now resurrected, this Jesus, now resurrected, sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, waiting to return to make all things new, including you and me. Amen? Good, good, good. I just wanted to practice that. I want to make sure we were all on the same page before we got going here. Now, I've been asked by the elders and the worship team to preach this morning in our Advent season, focusing on the theme, the story of peace, and to think specifically about the little town of Bethlehem in the Christmas story. And I just, I thank God that stretching back centuries in the life of the church, we take the time leading up to Christmas to walk through the season of Advent. Advent is just a word that means coming or arrival. It's an anticipatory season to celebrate Christ's first coming and anticipate his second coming. And we do so with the themes of hope, joy, love, and peace. And all over the world this morning, I think this is so cool, all over the world this morning, there are gatherings just like this one, embodying the presence of God in this hurting world, talking about these realities that we long for, praying for these realities that we long for, a world filled with hope, joy, love, and peace. Now, I'm 30 years old, and there's a lot that some of y'all have seen that I haven't seen. But as I watch the news today, as I read articles, it seems to me that our world is hurting in some really incredible ways right now. The United Nations came out with a statement in October of this year saying that one in 78 people worldwide are forcibly displaced. They're not at home. They're not in their community. They're not in their church. One in 78 And this is a quote from the UN. They say, war in Ukraine, conflicts in Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Myanmar, drought, floods, and insecurity in Somalia, as well as a prolonged humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, that's still going on, don't forget, have caused over 114 million people to be forcibly removed from their home. 114 million people. And church, that doesn't even take into account the chaos that takes place even today in the Gaza Strip. And so we live in a world that is desperately hurting. And and maybe more personal to us here at home is the mental health crisis that rages on in our country. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, in some of their most recent statistics, about 20% of U.S. adults as a whole experience a mental health condition. That's 25% of 26 to 49-year-olds 30% of 18 to 25-year-olds. So if you followed those statistics, as an adult, the younger you get, the more likely you are to suffer from a mental health condition. And we've all seen the reports of what it's also, the impact it's having on our teenagers as well. And I could go on and on with these sad statistics. But I I only do so to tell you what, what you already know. As a global community, we are not at peace. And as individuals, we are not at peace. Now, that's the bad news. And I know that you did not come to church today to hear bad news. Because our God is not a bad news God. Amen? Our God is a good news God. Gospel means good news. And so, we're going to get into the scripture here, and I'm sure you're asking yourself, what good news do you have for us this morning, Michael? So we're going to get into the scripture here in a moment, and we'll begin to answer 
that question. So we're about to read Matthew 2, if you want to start pulling out your Bible or whatever you have with you. Matthew 2. For context, Caesar Augustus is in Rome. He's the emperor. He's Rome's first true emperor. He's 1,400 miles away from Nazareth as the crow flies, and he has ordered a census to be taken of the entire Roman world, causing people from all sorts to return to their homeland, where they might own familial land of some kind, where their ancestors are from. And so this impacts, of course, Mary and Joseph. Now, remember, as we enter into the story, Caesar Augustus had his adoptive father. Who's Caesar Augustus' father? Anyone know? Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus had Julius Caesar declared to be a god in 42 B.C. So we can start to pick up on some irony here, right? Because here we have Mary and Joseph on the way, soon to give birth to the true Son of God, and they have been ordered to travel to Bethlehem by who? The self-proclaimed Son of God. And so as we enter into Matthew 2 here, Mary and Joseph have arrived in Bethlehem, and we will enter into the story in Matthew 2 now. And I forgot my Bible, so I need a second, sorry. Awesome. Why don't we stand for the reading of the gospel? This is Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, And search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So one of the first things Matthew wants us to know about Jesus is that he is born in Bethlehem of Judea. He's not born in Nazareth. He's not born in the 80-mile journey from Bethlehem to Nazareth. He is born in Bethlehem. And this is important because it's Matthew telling us right away that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And so Matthew tells us this story, that at the time, magi from the east, likely servants of the Persian king, they come to meet the newborn king just as dignitaries often would when a prince was born. And Matthew tells us that the Magi come to Jerusalem as they would, they'd expect to find the newborn king born where? Maybe in a palace, maybe in a grand house, maybe near the temple. So they they expect to find him in Jerusalem. Now it's important to know here a little bit about King Herod, 
right? Some of us know this character, King Herod, as Matthew calls him here, king, was proclaimed by the Roman Senate in 40 BC to be king of the Jews. And that's interesting, right? Because what question comes to the ears of King Herod in verse 2 of our text today? The Magi say to him, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And you can just feel the tension jump off the page at this point. You can just feel the tension because if there's something that Matthew knows and something that we know and King Herod doesn't know, it's that he ain't king of the Jews. Amen? Amen. He wants to pretend like he's the king of the Jews. He wants Rome to declare him king of the Jews, but he ain't king of the Jews. And if you know anything about Herod, you know he's a paranoid lunatic. I mean, this guy is Looney Tunes. And so if you even so much as cross this guy or look at him funny, you might find yourself dead. Throughout his reign, he kills, let's see, his brother-in-law, his favorite wife, which I thought that was an interesting phrase, his favorite wife, he has her killed. He has two of his sons executed for simply being accused of plotting against him to take his power. This guy will kill anyone and anything that even remotely threatens his power. And so this baby being born in Bethlehem, it concerns him. And so he calls the Jewish leaders and scribes and he asks them, where is the Messiah prophesied to be born? In other words, where is this King David-like figure who will restore Israel to its proper rule and reign on this earth? Where is that Messiah supposed to be born? In other words, Herod's asking, where is the one that I fraudulently claim to be? Where is he supposed to be born? And the scribes answer, as they should, with Scripture, saying, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, and they quote Micah 5, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, now, if we have any We Three Kings fans here, I hate to disappoint you. We're not going to focus so much on the three magi right now. We're going to focus in on Bethlehem. On Bethlehem. Bethlehem. If you take Hebrew through Trinity Evangelical Divinity School... And you take it with Dr. John Monson, one of the first words in Hebrew you learn is bet. Bet. And you practice saying that word again and again, and I'm sure I'm saying it incorrectly now, but you practice the word bet. It means house. It means house. And often as you read in the Bible, you'll see towns that start with the word B-E-T-H, Beth. And that's how we write it in English, Beth. And it means house. So anytime you see a, a town in Scripture that starts with the word Beth, you know that means the house of second half of the word. Now, the second word you might learn from Dr. Monson is pronounced Lechem. Lechem. And so if you put the two together, it's Bet Lechem. And I thought we should practice that today. So let's practice saying Bet Lechem. Bet Lechem. Bet Lechem. Lechem means bread. And so when you put the words together, Bethlehem means house of bread. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, all kinds of bells should be going off in your head right now. Because what does Jesus declare himself to be in John 6? I am the bread of life. And if you think about the ancient Near East and how important bread was to your everyday diet, we start to get an understanding of why it's significant that God shows for his Messiah to be born in a town called Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem. So the scribes tell King Herod that his promised Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, precisely where Herod's boss, Caesar Augustus, has sent Mary and Joseph. What's the significance of Bethlehem? Beyond its name, House of Bread, this is also the town of David. And it's deeply understood in Judaism that the Messiah would come from the town and lineage of David. And it's kind of interesting. Why is Bethlehem the town of David? How does David end up in Bethlehem? Does anyone know? Ruth. Ruth. The book of Ruth. It's one of the first significant mentions of Bethlehem in Scripture, where in the story, a man from Bethlehem, Elimelech, and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they leave Bethlehem due to famine. So they leave the city of bread because there's no bread. There's famine. And so they leave and they go to Moab. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they go to Bethlehem due to famine in search of food. And as the story progresses, the, the two sons, they take wives in Moab. Elimelech and the sons, they die And Naomi and Ruth end up traveling back to Bethlehem in search of food. Because now there's food in Bethlehem. And as Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, they're they're starving. They're they're in a difficult situation. And as the story goes, Boaz appears. Boaz is, is Ruth's guardian redeemer. And what that means is ultimately it's his responsibility to redeem Ruth out of her difficult situation. He marries her saves her, redeems her. This is how the story goes. And so as we think about the book of Ruth, we see foreshadowing that the Redeemer comes from where? He comes from Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem is the town of David because Ruth goes on to Mother Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David. And so Bethlehem is the town of David thanks to the bravery and faithfulness of his great-grandmother, the foreigner, the Moabite, Ruth. Okay, so now we're in the weeds here a little bit, so let's refocus. We're talking about the birth of Jesus here. We're thinking about Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Bethlehem is the house of bread. It's the birthplace to the bread of life. Bethlehem is the town of David thanks to his great-grandmother, Ruth. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Why does all of this concern Herod? Why is this important? Why does this cause Herod to murder every infant, every baby two years old and younger in the region? Well, because if this baby, if this boy Jesus is king of the Jews, then Herod is not. And so what I want to do here is I want to look. I was joking with someone before the the sermon. They asked if I was going to preach from Isaiah. I said, well, not Isaiah, but Micah. So we're going to go to Micah here. And we're going to talk a little bit about the prophecy that the scribes quote from in Matthew 2. So if you'd like, you can flip back in your Bible to Micah. I'll read it for you here in a moment. But you'll find a prophecy written roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. In a time when the people of God, they've been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, both are at immediate threat of being annihilated or subjugated by the conquering Assyrians coming from the north. So if you were here last week, Pastor Jace talked about this a little bit. He talked about the Assyrians. He talked about the threat. He talked about what might happen. But I'm going to double down on that. Because the Assyrians are not nice people. 
They are not nice people. They don't like to really fight as they conquer territory, as they sweep through the region, taking all the land that they walk across. They don't like to fight. Instead, what they would like to do is knock on your door and be so threatening, so scary, that your kingdom crumbles and you give in to them. And so what they would do, if you chose to fight them, they like to do things like defeat you and then maybe skin you alive or maybe impale you in some creative fashion. They like to behead you. Merry Christmas, right? But it's important to think about this, guys, because Micah is writing to the people in a time when they are not at peace. And when we say the word peace, we can mean all kinds of things, but this is a threat in the book of Micah 2,700 years ago from today. This is a point in the people of Israel, of the people of Judah, they are terrified of being subjugated, of being beheaded, right? This is, this is conflict in the world that sadly we see even today, even this morning. Immediate threat. They are in desperate need of salvation. They need a Savior. They need an act of God, and they need it now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to act like this prophecy in Matthew 2 is a hyperlink. We're going to click it. We're going back in time now, and we're going to read Micah 5, 1 through 5. And church, within this text, a prophecy written 700 years before the birth of Christ, I think that we will discover the good news that this Christmas brings for us today. We're going to discover the good news that Jesus brings each of us every day, the hope that he offers this pain-filled world, the good news that today, even today, God is offering you, he's offering me, he's offering this world something that we desperately need, peace, peace. So allow me to read the prophecy of Micah, written to the threatened people of God in the 8th century B.C., starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until a time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And perk up, this is the important part. And he shall be their peace. And he shall be their peace. Now there's so much in this passage we could talk about, but we're going to focus in on this ancient text, 2,700 years old, in Micah 5.5, and he shall be their peace. In Hebrew, ze shalom. Shalom. Church, as we gather on this second Sunday of Advent, let me remind you of something. Peace is not an ideal. It's not ultimately a goal or the result of a treaty. Peace is ultimately a person. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ. Amen? And just as the people of Judah 2,700 years ago knew that the only way they could find their way out of their mess was for God to send a Savior, we must know deep in our bones that the only way we will ever get out of our mess is for Christ to come again. Amen? 
See, Advent and Christmas, it's not only about the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of God coming to us in Jesus. Advent and Christmas is ultimately about recognizing that God kept his promise in coming the first time, and he will keep his promise in coming to us again. Christmas is Christ's Mass, the worship of Christ. He is coming again. My family does this thing where, this is a side, my family does this thing where we text about our family get-together on Christmas, and we call it Bergmas, because it's my last name. Maybe you do the same thing. And we'll say, when's Bergmas going to be this year? Oh, it's going to be on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve or whatever. And I cringe every time a little bit, right? Because this is Christmas. Christ's Mass, the worship of Christ. And yet, as we await for him to come again, how can Jesus be our peace today, here and now, in this war-torn, anxiety-filled world? So our, our time together is running short, but I'd like to think about this together for a few minutes. Ve'hayaze shalom. And he will be our peace. Some of you might catch the last word in the Hebrew, shalom. It's this ancient Jewish concept of peace. Shalom, it's a much fuller, more holistic word than what we mean when we say peace. Often when we say peace, we mean, well, there's just, we're not at war, right? It's like the Pax Romana that, that Caesar Augustus had issued. We're not at war. Everyone's secure. Everyone's fine. Everything's good. We're at peace. But this is not what the word shalom means. It's completeness. It's wholeness. It means that things are as they should be. I like this definition from Lisa Sharon Harper. So I'll quote her. Shalom is what God declared. Shalom is what the kingdom of God looks like. Shalom is when all people have enough. It's when families are healed. It's when churches, schools, and public policies protect human dignity. Shalom is when the image of God is recognized in every single human Shalom is our calling as followers of Jesus' gospel. It is the vision God set forth in the garden and the restoration that God desires for every relationship. Church, this is the peace that Jesus is meant to be for you today and for the world around us. That when people get on board with Jesus and his mission for the world, there's plenty, not scarcity. There's joy, not pain. There's wholeness, not brokenness. And so as we think about Jesus being our peace, how in this Christmas season can we pursue him and pursue the peace that he desires for us and for our world? A few thoughts here. First, if you have not made peace with God in asking for forgiveness for your sins, you will never have shalom peace in your life. I think it's important to remember that the world teaches us that our problem is beyond and that the solution is within. So the world teaches us that our issues in life come from our family of origin or from trauma from experiences or difficulties from where we were born or, or, or some of those things. And while there's some truth to that, the world teaches us that the path to peace comes in discovering who you ultimately are. And you have to discover who you ultimately are, and you've just got to be at peace with that and be comfortable and confident, whoever that person might be. That peace is within you if you just look deep enough. Now, the problem with that worldly teaching is that the Bible basically teaches the opposite of it. 
The Bible teaches us that as humanity, our deepest, darkest problem of all is within us, is that we are born by nature sinners. And that sin has infected us, and therefore it has infected our relationships, and by extension the systems of our world and our societies and our cultures, that the problem starts within us. And while the problem is within us, the solution, therefore, is ultimately beyond us. That the solution is not anything that we can attain by ourselves, but that the ultimate solution is for God to come himself in the incarnation. That the solution is for Jesus to break into our world, to live a sinless life, to die a a painful death on the cross, and to redeem us, to give us his Holy Spirit so that we may walk in him in his life. That's the solution. So the first thing this morning, church, have you made peace with God in Jesus Christ? Have you made peace with God in Jesus Christ? He must be your shalom peace between you and God the Father. Have you accepted Jesus as Lord of your life? Second thing, and I think that this is where many of us find ourselves this morning. You've accepted Jesus as Lord. You've done that. You've been coming to church for years. You've taken communion. You've done all of these things, and still you find yourself not at peace. You look at your life, you look at your family, your relationships, and they are not peaceful. They are reigned by chaos, not peace. Church family, Micah 5.5, he will be our peace. I am convinced that every discontented feeling in your soul, in your very life, can be filled and healed by the presence of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That every shortcoming you feel in yourself, that every every ounce of discontent you have can be filled and healed by the presence of God in your life. See, there's this weird thing that happens. We start following Jesus and we think think things are going to get easier. And the problem is, is that if you read the New Testament, that's not true, right? Like, if you read the New Testament, you'll discover that as soon as you start proclaiming the name of Jesus, your life's going to get harder. Bad things are going to come your way when you start proclaiming the name of Jesus, because the world doesn't like that. King Herod doesn't like that. Caesar doesn't like that. And church, I I just have this, I wanted to say to you today, what if trusting Jesus to be our peace meant that your life looked more like the Apostle Paul's who says in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Church worshiping God and giving our lives, lives to him is not making, about making our world. It's not about making our world, our life, into the image that we want it to be. Following Jesus is about, over time, being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And whatever comes our way along that path, we can have peace because we know what we're about. We know where we're going. We know what our destiny is. It's to reign and rule alongside King Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the hard thing I wanted to say to you today. If you're a Christ follower this morning and you are not at peace with what God has given you, this is a call to drop any agenda you have for yourself and this life and to live this day 
today walking in the way that Jesus walked for the kingdom and glory of God. He is our shalom, peace. Now my final thought for us this morning as we're about out of time. The people that Micah was writing to, it didn't work out too well for them. Most of their region, most of their territory is conquered by the Assyrians. And as the Assyrians are knocking on Jerusalem, laying siege to the city of the king of Judah, all is lost, all hope is lost, and just as it seems that the Assyrians are going to devastate and wipe out the people of God, something happens. The Lord sends an angel. Maybe you know this story. The Lord sends an angel. And the Assyrian armies beyond the gates of Jerusalem are thrown into chaos. They're wiped out. And you know what they do? They pick up and they go home. And I just wonder what King Hezekiah, what what the Judans inside the walls of Jerusalem thought to themselves. As they thought they were about to face immediate death. And instead the Lord sent an angel. And the Assyrians got up and they walked home. And so, this morning, as we think about the little child born to Mary and Joseph in the manger in Bethlehem all those years ago, what else is that but a declaration to us, just like the people trapped by the Assyrians, that we cannot save ourselves? What else is that but a call for us to raise our white flag, to fall down to worship him as we see the three magi doing in our text from earlier? What else can we do but gaze at Jesus, born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem, but recognize that he is the Son of God and we are not? Recognize that he is our shalom, and any of our efforts or strivings alone will never be enough. What if your life right now is being besieged by the metaphorical Assyrians, and they're laying siege to your soul, and there's truly nothing for you to do but open your hands and surrender to the Lord and say, God, I need you this morning, now, to be my peace. Church, Ruth shows us that the Redeemer will be born in Bethlehem. Micah tells us the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And the Magi this morning lead us to the King of the Jews, born in Bethlehem. He is here, and He is coming. May He be our peace today and always. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and humbled that you came to us in a situation that seemed hopeless. God, we, as a society and as a world, we are not at peace this morning. And bad news keeps coming in every day. And so, God, this is us um, coming to you this morning with our hands open. And just raising our white flag, saying, we cannot do this on our own, oh God. We need you. We need you, Jesus, to be our peace. And so God, whatever we have going on this morning in our own lives, we just ask that you would help us to abide in you, to walk with you, to live as you live, Jesus, so that we can embody your peace to those around us. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you sent Jesus to be our Savior, to be the Messiah, that we can trust him for life now and life everlasting. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.